0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko.
1: Coming to you, both of us, from Austin, Austin, Texas. Texas,
0: (laughs) Y'all. Yeah, we've been here for the DUI Defense Lawyers Association Austin Seminar, which has been amazing.
1: Really, really good. Uh, Great lineup of speakers, lots of interesting things. Um, You worry about diminished returns to coming to these things regularly, and then every time you show up, You learn something you realize, Oh man, that can help me. That can help me defend my clients. And, um, that's why I like coming because everybody here in this organization, particularly the people who are active and, you know, discuss things in the listserv, which the secret listserv, um, are creative minds, uh, looking at problems with policing and figuring out why, you know, Often enough, people are innocent despite the fact that they are arrested for DUI.
0: D-W-I down here.
1: O-W-I in yeah. some places. Um, and uh, impaired impaired operation in some places too, just like in Canada.
0: Yep. So that's um, what we've been doing. And uh, I guess we should tell people that if they're interested in coming to these seminars, since they hear from us at these seminars so often... We do podcasts while we're at the seminar because they start on Thursdays. That's
1: true. Um, the, well, they uh, start on Wednesdays for us. Yeah, because we've got to do the work. Because we got to do all the setup. Um, part of the board of directors or whatever we call them. But if
0: you're interested in coming, the next one is from April 20th to April 22nd in Nashville, Tennessee.
1: And you don't have to be a member to come to the conference. Um in order to be a member, there are some rules and you have to be sponsored by somebody and you've got to do a certain amount of DUI work, but um, it's a great organization to join because it's uh, just an incredible resource. Um, you know, we, we heard again from uh, Dr. Lee Polite, uh, this time from uh, Axion Labs, and uh, every time he speaks, he's just so engaging and I always learn something. And maybe he said it last time. The way he said it this time, suddenly stuck in my brain and <laughs> yep. seemed that it applied. So, um, yeah, you can join the DUI DLA or you can just attend as a uh, an attendee at a conference.
0: Well, I'm going to say my favorite today was Sean Kent. But oh, Sean. Sean's, he's my favorite. Sean
1: is amazing. Whenever I don't speaks, know where we saw him speak before. Maybe it was two years Charleston. ago. Um, he and- had
0: his wrongfully convicted client come.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is he uh, he's not a DUI lawyer, uh, but you know, he's amazing with a jury. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, a lot mm-hmm. of the trials, except for the District of Columbia, uh, are jury trials in the U.S. And uh, in the um, city of Washington and District of Columbia, they have bench trials just like we have in B.C.
0: Yep. So, we have lots to talk about. Um, we do a lot of judicial reviews of immediate roadside prohibitions, as we talk about frequently on this podcast. And Anna in our office was running a judicial review today, so we know that she does a lot of them.
1: <laughs> she's doing them all the time. She's doing
0: them all the time. She's basically doing it's many I think, for I me. I think it's
1: become her favorite thing.
0: Well, she's good at them.
1: She's very, very good, at good at them. them succeeded in a number.
0: And a lot of people think that appealing an immediate roadside prohibition is an easy thing. I mean, even doing the initial hearing with the adjudicator, but then if you don't win the hearing, going to BC Supreme Court. And so the the
1: process is you conduct a hearing at the uh, superintendent of motor vehicles tribunal with the delegate of the superintendent of motor vehicles, they render a decision. And uh, if you're successful, great. If you're not successful, you look at the decision to see whether or not uh, it can be um, defended in law. And if it can't or you think that you've got an argument, then you can make a petition for a judicial review in B.C. Supreme Court.
0: Yes. And so when people think about going in front of a judge versus the experience that they have in the tribunal, because in the tribunal you have some faceless, semi-nameless person on the other end of the phone. I mean, they tell you a last name, but they used to use pseudonyms. So can you really trust them? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, they tell you the, their name on the phone, but you don't see them. You don't interact with them. That You don't know anything about their qualifications or their background. Um, and they don't ask you questions. They don't engage with you as you're doing your submissions. They mostly just listen to your submissions and wait to see If you meet your burden of proof.
1: It's one of the things that people who try and defend their own IRP, um, really misunderstand. And, uh, they think that they're going to have a redo or that they're going to be able to have a discussion, uh, that they're going to be able to go further into it than they can. They can't. It's just an adjudicator at the other end. Maybe they're typing. Yeah. Maybe they're not.
0: (laughs) And it becomes a problem because people don't feel like they got a fair shake in their original hearing. And so they think that when they appeal to BC Supreme Court, what they're gonna get is another opportunity to argue their case, but that it'll be fair because this time it's with a judge and we associate judges with a a lack of bias, with impartiality, with fairness.
1: It's a real problem actually, because it's held out even on the government's website. Like you're gonna get a sort of a rehearing, you're gonna get a different view of it. You're going to get a different assessment of it. And it's basically like you're going to the person's boss or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's not the case at all, right? It's a completely um, different rules when it comes to the judicial review. We have this, you know, we, we, we've turned uh, uh, DUI law, I guess, in BC into an administrative matter with an administrative tribunal and then the court generally has to defer to the administrative tribunal, recognizing its expertise. Although we have no idea what the expertise is, because there's no resumes or anything provided for the for the uh, tribunal members. Uh, some are, you know, highly knowledgeable about certain things. But as you start your submissions, you have no idea whether or not they're even hanging on or understanding what you're explaining. Um, And then, uh, you know, when it comes time to go to court, you know, the judge looking at it may say to themselves, I would never have come to this decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, right? I mean, you know, as you know, Kyla, you're the expert.
0: Yes. So (laughs) to get into this, there were two cases in the last week both involving people who did their own judicial reviews. So they oh my were, goodness. They self-represented, judicial self-represented judicial reviews. Self-represented judicial reviews. So the first one um, was released. Actually, this one made me laugh because I was on MS Teams one day, um, the day that this one was argued. Um, the first day it was argued in March. And I was supposed to be there for my own judicial review. And somebody said, "Miss Lee, are you also here on this matter?" And I had like
1: little moment of panic, a
0: heart attack, because I thought, "Did I schedule something else and forget about it? It wouldn't make the list unless I filed binders." But you know, my sports staff are usually more on top of things than I am. And oh my God, is something added to the list? Maybe to just speak to something I don't even know what's going on. And then no, not my client. <laughs> Lucky. But yeah, mm-hmm. they just saw the superintendent Ooh. of motor vehicles and they were like, a must be Kyla. Um, not always, sometimes it's a self-represented individual. And the unfortunate thing is that both of these individuals, so the first one is Claire and British Columbia's Superintendent of Motor Vehicles, uh, decision of Justice Winteringham, deals with uh, Corporal Hamidi who uh, sees Mr. Clare's vehicle in a parking lot, there's some trouble um, maintaining the lane, it parks in front of a store that's closed, Um, and there's some dispute about whether Mr. Clare was the one driving or whether it was his passenger. And the court has to consider whether or not Mr. Clare, who's self-represented, had a hearing that was fair and whether or not the decision was reasonable. And the first thing that Mr. Clare tried to do is he tried to introduce fresh evidence. So if you're going to do a judicial review yourself, you better know what the rules are around this.
1: Yeah, there's a problem because, you know, you're you're looking at it after the fact and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my gosh, had we not put had we put that evidence in, which you couldn't really have anticipated a lot of the time. Then uh, or you didn't find out about until after the fact. Yeah. Then maybe we would have succeeded. But Um, there's sort of a presumption that it's going to be fair as you are approaching it. But then you realize this is, you know, this is administrative law and it's not necessarily fair. (laughs) So well,
0: and and you don't get a redo with fresh evidence. And this is also one of the problems with being self-represented at the original hearing as well. With fresh evidence, the first thing that you have to establish is that the evidence was not... With reasonable diligence available at the original hearing.
1: And this is the... I don't don't agree with that legal principle, but that's the legal principle.
0: Yes. So, you know, when we take on immediate roadside prohibition cases, we're always thinking about how do we set up our clients for a potential judicial review? What can we ask them for? What can we put before the tribunal that will make the case strong to try and win the hearing? But if we don't win the hearing... We'll maybe make it so that we could succeed on a judicial review of the decision because the record was so strong the decision was unreasonable on the face of that record.
1: Well I think I mean I look at the ones that you do and I that you set up and it seems to me that a lot of the time you're trying to set it up so the tribunal would look bad if they upheld it.
0: Yeah. I mean which that's the that, point.
1: That seems to be your your method, because they'll uphold it if they won't look bad, it seems, you know, in my experience, so, a um, lot of the time.
0: Unfortunately for Mr. Right Claire his fresh evidence was available at the hearing before the adjudicator, but he did not tender it. This included CCTV footage of the parking lot, video evidence and transcripts from a witness's phone, transcripts of an audio recording uh, that captured the conversation between the people in the car and Corporal Hamidi. And the court essentially said all he's doing is trying to shore up the record after the fact and then re-argue the very issue that was before the adjudicator so the fresh evidence is not admissible. You've got to put your best foot forward.
1: Well, the unfortunate thing about that is, um, okay, the court often talks about you can always imagine better evidence, and that's usually when criticizing the tribunal for um, imagining some other thing that maybe you could have put forward. Yeah. But when you've got, like, substantive, real evidence.
0: But it's, it's one thing to say there may have been CCTV footage of the parking lot and you didn't provide it. Therefore, I, I question the veracity of your version of events versus you had CCTV footage that you did not provide. And now you're trying to provide it on appeal and say that this should get you a new hearing when all this whole time this was in your possession and you just chose not to submit it.
1: Well, the unfortunate thing about that is the hurdles to submitting that evidence like the tribunal seems to make it almost impossible to give them those things a lot of the time. Uh, You and I both noted that Mm -hmm. Um, sending them video evidence, uh, you know, you you phone them first and you say, how are we going to send this to you? and then you try and send it to them and it doesn't work and they don't want the format that you've got and they should be rightly worried about introducing a virus into a government computer system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they want you to send a USB stick. Uh, it's all kind of ridiculous when you know it's, it's, it's unnecessary hurdles put in front of a person. Sure. But in any event, this guy didn't put it in.
0: Didn't have a lawyer, didn't put it in, didn't have a lawyer on his judicial review. Now, he still argues the judicial review after his fresh evidence is dismissed. He still says, I don't think the decision is is reasonable, and then re-argues his whole case. And the judge, because judges have a duty to assist self-represented individuals, said, well, you didn't make any arguments about the reasonableness of the decision, I will rely on my own, you know, analysis and application of the law to review the decision to see if it was reasonable to give you the benefit because you're self-represented.
1: It's a it's a tough thing as a lawyer, you know, because, you know, you can send somebody in to cry
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they can go cry and cry and cry in front of the judge and they might pull it off that, you know, wouldn't have happened if they were represented And their lawyer was keeping them from crying and they were trying to stick with the facts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so here the self-represented individual gets their hand held by the judge. Um, Meanwhile, the government on the other side, you know, is held to the strict standard.
0: Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the problem when a judge does this is that they do so without the benefit of all of the law that has been developed by me and now Anna in this area. We've worked very hard to yeah. try and create favorable cases, favorable on certain patterns of decision making and reasoning that we've seen that we find problematic. To try and eliminate that or at least set it up again for a judicial review if an adjudicator tries to pull that.
1: For the benefit of the law as a whole.
0: Yep. And unfortunately, none of those cases were put before Justice Winteringham, whom you know, former Crown Counsel, very or fair, good judge, or... smart, um, and explained to her. So here's the crux of the case. Remember that Mr. Clare had argued that he was not the person driving his car, and somebody else had been driving, and then they he jumped into the, the a different seat, um, or she jumped into a different seat, the driver. And she says, the reason, the adjudicator in their reasons explained why they preferred the evidence of Corporal Humidi over Mr. Clare, specifically citing the following reasons. The first, you're going to groan when I read these to you. The first, that it was improbable that an officer would act, ask the occupants of the vehicle who was driving, um, but assume that Mr. Clare was the driver because he uttered the words, yes, officer, when the window was rolled down. In other words, the adjudicator did not accept Mr. Claire's suggestion that Corporal Hamidi confused Yes Officer as an admission by the driver. um, That he was the driver. Second, the adjudicator found it implausible that Mr. Clare would not have told Corporal Hamidi at the scene that Miss Randhawa was the driver. Third, in addition, the adjudicator noted that Miss Randhawa had her seatbelt on and Mr. Clare did not, supporting the theory that he been the one who'd move seats. Okay, that one's fair. That one's, that one's good. That's not bad. Based on Corporal Hamidi's report about the location of the stop, the adjudicator was satisfied that the lighting would have been sufficient for Corporal Hamidi to see what was occurring when we have a court of appeal case that says you can't do that. That's speculative reasoning in... And- And finally, Mr. Clare's witness told the police that it was Ms. Randawa who was driving, but that this only occurred after Mr. Clare was arrested and the adjudicator questioned the delay in sharing this account with Corporal Hamidi. Now, these things, who said what and when, and what the officer could see based on speculative inferences have all been addressed in existing cases.
1: Recently in uh, a case that Anna argued, Dollywell. Yep. In in so many cases, presumptions of regularity on behalf of the police.
0: But these things were not brought to the attention of the judge. And I I raise them because it is so important to understand that if you're going to do a judicial review, you can't just go there and re-argue your case because then judges are going to do their own assessment without the benefit of favorable law. And you should hire a lawyer to do your judicial review. Like it is one of the very few things in law where I I can say with certainty, you will be better off if you are represented by counsel.
1: Absolutely. In a judicial review of an administrative decision, absolutely, you have to be represented by counsel because look at the law. Okay. So when the IRP scheme was introduced, the government tried to write it so nobody would succeed. And the government tried to write it so nobody would be able to succeed on appeal, mm-hmm. uh, and they did. Uh, they did that uh, really disingenuously. But um, you know, you basically you and a few other lawyers, but you know, you you've sort of headed this up. Uh, have appealed decision after decision after decision.
0: So many decisions to
1: basically sort of expose what's taking place uh, and uh, and and carve out a better assessment of those decisions being rendered uh, by the superintendent's office. And uh, now we have some clearer law. We still have a long, long way to go, uh, but we have some much clearer law and failing to put that before the judge uh, in this case. I mean, there was some, are obviously some decent arguments to be made, but you don't get a redo and a redo and a redo and a redo and a redo. And a redo. Eventually, you know, <laughs> You come to the end of the line.
0: Yeah, as this person did. So the other case is not much better. Um, we don't have a ton of time for it because uh, we are running out of time on our podcast. But it's the same thing. It's somebody who just tries to uh, re-argue their case um, and not, not bring any case law to the court. And as a result, ends up with an unfavorable decision. And this issue was not a very strong issue to begin with. Mr. Zamani was upset because there were some things in the officer's report that weren't mentioned, like the fact that there was a supervising officer who came to the scene, but that was not in the officer's report. And he also argued that he had a medical condition for not providing a sample. And again, it's another situation of somebody who gets some evidence to support their case but not enough based on everything that has sort of been
1: but, but the assessed. case the, the case law establishes that material omissions can be used to uh, draw into question the credibility and reliability of the police officer's evidence particularly if it is something that goes to the heart of it, that one would reasonably expect the police officer to provide. Yep. And so I assume this individual didn't make that argument. No. Certainly didn't make it at the hearing, which was the time to make the argument.
0: No, he provided a uh, note from his doctor saying that he had anxiety disorder and suffers from panic attacks when under stress, in which he shuts down, and that he's currently on medication to manage his symptoms. Nothing about how it actually affects his ability to blow into a breathalyzer, which he was accused of refusing to do.
1: Can I make a, in parentheses, comment about this? Yes. Doctor's notes. So um, people go to their doctor thinking that a doctor's note is going to be meaningful. And they ask their doctor and they tell their doctor what the issue is. And they explain, look, this is what I've got. And you know and I know that I've got this long history of not being able to exhale steady breath of air. Um, Can you do something for me? And the doctor writes a scribbly little note or types it out in two lines um, and uh, doesn't flesh it out at all. And it comes across as really sort of an arrogant thing. Like, I'm not going to put the effort into this, but you should know because I'm a doctor uh, that uh, this person couldn't blow. Um, And it is, almost universally rejected when that is the thing you're relying on and it's a problem for us when we're trying to conduct the hearings when people go to their doctor and that's what they get Mm -hmm. Um, and really what you need to do is establish the evidentiary record rather than having the doctor's note Mm -hmm. and i get it the doctors can write to other doctors and explain things in that way and it might be sufficient for your employer, but the tribunal, and it should probably should be sufficient for the tribunal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. And that's where the self-represented people usually, you know, end up tripping on that step.
0: Yeah. Anyway, um ultimately the court concludes that the doctor's note didn't say anything about his ability to provide a breast sample. So it was not uh not helpful and uh the court again undertook its own assessment of the reasonableness but found that on the evidence provided the decision was reasonable now turning to the conclusion of our podcast Paul.
1: oh my goodness it's a good one but it's a unusual for us
0: the ridiculous driver of the week The Ridiculous Driver of the Week.
1: So, unusual for two reasons. Unusual because it's two ridiculous drivers. And unusual because um, we don't usually look at death cases for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And um, thinking back over these years of your podcast, Kyla, Mm -hmm. I cannot think of another case where... Well, you give us the facts
0: <laughs> well, this is a a woman who was uh, in las Vegas, uh high on cocaine and alcohol, speeding down the road and
1: she struck
0: as she's doing this, a man in another car making a u-turn from the center lane. clears in front of her path and she smashes into him and the driver and passenger in the first car ejected from the vehicle. Uh, this woman's, uh, car travels about 150 feet before it stops in some landscaping. Um, unfortunately the, uh, driver of the U-turning vehicle ends up, um, dying, but turns out the driver of the U-turning vehicle was also drunk and also high, but on meth.
1: <laughs> so you've got one person who's high on cocaine. They both they both died, but there was a passenger, I think, if somebody was injured, or there was somebody who survived. Yep. Um, is somebody charged? I think there was somebody charged in that case.
0: There was, yes. The, um, the woman on cocaine and um, uh, alcohol was charged.
1: And the other driver's dead
0: and the other driver's dead.
1: So the drunk driver's dead.
0: The the drunk meth, driver, drunk meth driver. Drunk
1: meth is dead. driver's
0: dead. Drunk cocaine, cocaine, cocaine driver, driver alive and charged. Charged.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. So those are two ridiculous drivers. Those are um what happens in Vegas ends up often in the court in uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs>
0: not everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Obviously, well,
1: it, it becomes a uh, national, international news story. Yep. So rare occasion where we have the ridiculous driver of the week. One of them's dead, and the other one's charged. Uh, but they're both uh, apparently alleged to be have been impaired by drugs, alcohol, or a combination thereof.
0: And I keep thinking about this when I read this story. And I go, a negative times a negative makes a positive. Or, two wrongs do make a right? Like, don't they just cancel each other out, and shouldn't you just let this poor woman go?
1: Well, no, she lived. Other guy died.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, he was making an illegal U-turn, and he was drunk and high on meth, so... Kind of his own fault.
1: As you know, I have... Very little forgiveness for people who make a negative, uh, a unlawful U-turn.
0: Yeah. And I have very little forgiveness for people who cause their own deaths. And I don't think people should be charged just because they happened to be drunk and high on cocaine and maybe speeding a bit. And they killed somebody who was also drunk and high and breaking the law. I think it should just cancel each other out. I think this is a wash. We move on. We learn from this.
1: I think it's time for a strongly worded letter, Kyla.
0: <laughs> Dear Las Vegas Prosecution Office.
1: As far as I'm concerned.
0: I'm a DUI lawyer. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't need a bar complaint. Um, well,
1: we, you know, we very rarely does the DUI DLA have their conferences in Nevada for reasons that make a lot of sense. Um, but, anyway, uh, yeah. that's our podcast. That is. So, so much.
0: if you need to get in touch with us, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604 685 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.